This is a Voice in the Wilderness podcast. The topic I'm going to be covering today is how the early Catholic Church survived its first 300 years of existence without recognition and without the institutions which modern-day Catholics take for granted. But first, a prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, Amen. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do shall be consecrated to the service, honor, and glory, and exaltation of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, and the Heavenly Kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, Immaculate Heart of Mary, please pray for us. Sacred Heart of Jesus, please pray for us. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Ghost. Okay, so I think the topic pretty much speaks for itself. The reason I'm covering this particular topic, and honestly speaking, I don't have detailed analytics, so when I put my podcasts out, I'm not really sure where they land. And honestly speaking, I really don't need to know where they land because this is not for me. This is for God. God will make sure it lands where it needs to. Having said that, though, I suspect I don't get many set of a contest listening to this uh, particular podcast, which is fine, you know. Whatever happens, God's will will make it happen. But in this, for, for the topic of this particular episode, honestly, this is something that not just said of a contest need to hear. It's something that especially the Vatican II sect members and the Neotrads need to hear. Because... This is just a theory on my part, given with my contact with the Vatican II sect and the Neotreads online, is what seems to be a stumbling block, a major stumbling block for some of them, is the fact that if they were to go to Sedevacantism, there would be no magisterium and there would be no pope. And honestly speaking, I, I, I have to believe that this is the major stumbling block beyond the personal stuff like, well, you know, if you were raised Vatican II sect member or Neotrad and you decide to become a set of a contest and your family are Vatican II types or the Neotrads, that it's going to put it's, it's going to put some distance between you and your family. And I'm not faulting anyone for feeling that way. It, it's just a fact of life. But as far as the theological issues go, um, I'm just going to put it bluntly. If you're a Vatican II sect member or a Neotrad and you cannot... You cannot see with your own eyes and your common sense that Vatican II was a heretical council 
and everything that came out of Vatican II is heretical, nothing I say or do in any of my podcasts are going to change your mind barring an act of direct intervention from Lord Jesus or the Blessed Mother or any of the saints. Barring that, you're going to need a literal act of God to get to even understand the concept. Now, um, there is another reason I'm doing this topic too. And the reason I'm doing this topic is besides the obvious parallels um, between the start of the first Catholic uh, of the, the first start of the Catholic Church in Rome and yes Protestants the the Catholic uh, I'm, yeah the Catholic Church did start in Jerusalem but when Peter went to Rome and was martyred there that become the that became the headquarters of the Catholic Church period um but uh there are obvious parallels one of the parallels I'm talking about is and I'm I'm going to I mean you can generally talk about Western Europe or Europe, Europe for that matter. Europe and American culture in general. But I'm going to be speaking from a particularly American perspective because as I've said on my original podcast, and I'm not really sure I've mentioned it on this one, I try to speak from an aspect that I'm familiar with and what I know. I did spend three years over in Western Europe, uh, but that was almost 40 years ago. And even in America, and this is not me being an old fogey, it's the literal truth. Perhaps I'm being nostalgic, which I shouldn't be, but the America, American culture of my early years and don't misunderstand this I am literally not being sentimental about this in my formative years the American culture and society that I grew up with oh yeah was plenty depraved and plenty corrupt but you know we're talking 40 years later give or take and the American society and the American culture of now um, <laughs> to those people who always say oh it can't get any worse it can't get any worse well <laughs> if you're if you're over 40 guess what it got worse and it's Believe it or not, we're, it's going to get even worse. As bad as it is now, it's going to get even worse. 
Um, some of this I'm saying with the benefit of obviously um, hindsight. And, and I ain't gonna lie. Would you become a true Catholic? It really opens your eyes. I mean, if you're trying to practice piety and devoutness, it's really going to open your eyes to a lot of things. The corruptness of a lot of things that you might not necessarily have thought about or took for granted growing up. As I never get tired of saying, it's the nature of the beast. And it is. But there are a lot of parallels between present-day American society and Roman society at the time of uh, St. Paul and St. Peter's execution. And by the way, Protestants, um, if you stick around and listen to the whole episode, I'll commend you. Honestly speaking, though, I'm going to be talking about a lot of things that if you're, if you're even, you know, if you're seriously committed to your Protestantism, a lot of what I'm going to say is either you're not going to understand it or you're going to vehemently disagree with what I'm saying. So that's my disclaimer. However, if you go to my original podcast, um, in the earlier episodes, I want to say episodes two, three, and the three-part episode six on St. Longinus's baptism, I do cover why the errors of Protestantism and why a lot of Protestants don't even understand. And not just those either. In, in other episodes on the, my original podcast, I have tangentially said... You know, this is an era of Protestantism. This is why you're wrong. Anyway, I've done my disclaimer. So let's get to the meat of the matter. Now, I'm going to have to switch back and forth. What I'm going to attempt to do is start off first. And a lot of this is going to have to do with the blessings and graces that blessed Jesus and Mother Mary give me to stay focused and on point. Because anybody who's even remotely familiar with how I operate, I tend to to get to wander before I go back to my my original point. So I'm going to start off with pagan Roman society at the time of the martyrdom of St. Paul and St. Peter. And... Then I'm going to go to present-day American society. Like I said, you can apply this to all of Europe, but I'm going to stick with what I know. Um, so, in pagan Rome, there was no national religion, for lack of a better term. You had... A bunch of, it, it tolerated different religions. And by the way, those of you who are familiar with American culture and politics are going to see the parallels of what I'm talking about. Just try to bear with me if you do. It tolerated a bunch of, a bunch of sects, 
under the overall umbrella that the emperor was God. Now, if I'm remembering my ancient Roman history correctly, and to those of you who are a little more informed on this situation, please let me know. And by the way, I just want to say, with the benefit of hindsight, it's too late for recriminations, but I can honestly say, because there was a period where I was briefly consuming content about the Roman ancient empire. And I find it much more fascinating than anything within the past, oh, I'd say since, since the Protestant revolt. But anyway, I don't want to digress too far. My understanding of how Roman religious belief went was prior to the adopted son of Julius Caesar, who was known as Augustus Caesar, that Roman culture in general tolerated, you know, you didn't necessarily need to believe in the Roman gods. Jews, Zoroastrians, whatever the religion you know, and they had a huge empire at the time. Whatever your particular regional religion was, if you moved to Rome, you were free to practice that religion as long as, this is key, as long as you did not run afoul of the Roman state. Now, when, when the emperor Augustus better known as Augustus Caesar, took the throne after the assassination of his adopted father, Julius Caesar. He pretty much finagled the Senate in declaring him God. Now, part of declaring him God was what is known in... Uh, uh, by historians is the cult of the emperor. Which, if you want to simplify it into basic modern terms, it was a cult of personality. Except that the Roman culture at that time, um, being different than, a, than, than modern culture, they took their cult of personality, well... I'll, I'll, I'll say this. It depended on the person because people are individuals. But in general, your average Roman citizen, if even a Roman themselves said, eh, uh, Augustus Caesar, he's a chump. He's not God. This is bull crap. You know, we shouldn't be doing this. Would probably get killed on the spot by his fellow citizens. No questions asked. Now, I don't want to go too deep into a history lesson, although, honestly speaking, this is kind of a history lesson. Up until the time of Nero, 
the pagan Roman government's attitude toward the Catholic religion was indifference. Ignorance and indifference. As a matter of fact, they considered Christianity because its founder was Jewish. They pretty much considered uh, Christianity just an offshoot of Judaism. Because, and this is recorded historically, a lot of the Jewish religious leaders, not just in Rome itself, but throughout the Roman Empire, used to complain to the local Roman authorities and say, hey, these, these Christians, they're a bunch of heretics, you need to do something about them. And the general reaction, you know, once again, people, depending on the governor or whatever, would say, go pound sand, they're one of your own. We're not interested. Where this changed was, and this is where my lack of detailed knowledge in the history, the timeline of how these things worked out is going to trip me up. Either before, I'm sorry, let me back up. When Peter and Paul were martyred, I don't know if it was before Rome burned down or if it was after Rome burned down. Now, if I had to, to take a dart and try to hit the board, I would say that this was probably before Rome burned down, but I'm not absolutely certain. But... Under the Emperor Nero, most of Rome burned down because most of Rome, people look at the people look at the ruins of Rome and they see a lot of stone buildings and they just assume that a lot of the buildings in Rome were stone. At the time of Nero, nothing, I mean, yes, they had stone buildings. But the majority of Rome was wooden. <laughs> and so when Rome got set on fire, now, because I'm not 100% certain on this fact, I'm going to give the disclaimer, this is my understanding, you take it for what it's worth. The rumor that I heard was, was that Nero himself sent his agents to torch Rome in particular places. And I believe the reason was, was either he himself or one of his cronies wanted to buy up the property and build some stuff on the property that they could use for their own personal benefit. That is my own understanding. But another part of this understanding is that because Rome was made of wood, the majority of it was, there happened to be strong winds the night that the fires were set. And whereas Nero had meant to start what is known as a controlled burn 
While anybody who's ever lived in the western United States near a wooded area will tell you, um, a controlled burn when the wind is blowing very strongly is very difficult to control. Even in present day, uh, present times, it's very difficult to control. And we have a lot more technology at our disposal than Nero did at the time that he torched Rome. Allegedly. So, after, and I'm not going to try to get into the percentages, but a great deal of Rome and and I think around the time that Rome actually burned, I want to say, and if I'm wrong, just cut me some slack. Uh, ancient Roman history is not my strong point. But I want to say at the time of Rome's burning, at the time of Nero, that the population of Rome was anywhere between half a million to a million. And I could be wrong about that. But you autists out there, don't get your panties in a knot. My, my point in bringing this up is, is Rome was by ancient standards a very large city. And so, a lot of people obviously died. Because the wealthy... And the well-to-do could afford stone houses or they could afford to live in the sections of Rome that Nero had no interest in or couldn't get his greedy little mitts on. And so he didn't bother with them. But a lot of the places that he did burn had a lot of what are known as plebs. A pleb is basically your poor working class citizens. And after this happened, and I'll... Um, you know, thousands of plebs had died. Well, Rome being Rome, the first person that they suspected was Nero. And they were out for blood. So Nero, to cover his tracks, blamed the Christians. Now, I'm sure that there's a big, long, involved, detailed story why he blamed the Christians. That's not the purpose of this, pod, of this episode, so I'm not going to get into that. But he blamed the Christians, and he outlawed the practice of Christianity within the Roman Empire. Now, we are talking somewhere in the 60s AD, if I'm not mistaken. 60s AD. So, 30 years after Jesus was crucified and ascended into heaven. And he made it a capital offense to practice Christianity. Now, of course, the first thing that happened was was that a bunch of um, and people are people, but some of the Roman citizens, the first thing they did was was they started killing and beating any Christian that any known Christian that they could get their hands on. And, you know, let's, let's toss in the fact that Roman governmental authorities, because, you know, Nero, in addition 
to being an emperor was a despot to boot. And if you owe your position to a despot, you got to follow his orders. So they started roaming up any known Christians that they can get their hands on and started executing them. I'm 25 minutes into this. This took a lot longer than I wanted to. So I'm going to try to make this brief. The way the, uh, the Catholic martyrs were executed, first of all, I want to... They were, they were executed throughout the Roman Empire. But in Rome themselves, I'm sorry, in Rome itself, now there would be obviously places in the vicinity of Rome where, where they were executed. But when the Roman government wanted to do a mass execution, they had what was known as a Colosseum. It was an open-air stadium where people would watch gladiators fight to the death, gladiators fighting wild beasts to the death. Um, just your basic, what are known as amusements to take their mind off, you know, whatever. And when they wanted to do a mass execution, what they would do is, is they would take a batch of Christians and... When I talk about these, these, these means of execution, some of them were done in the form with um, mass executions, and then other forms were uh, whatever the local governor, governor decided you know, how he wanted it done. Or the local government official it didn't necessarily even need to be a governor. Anyhow, so here's, here's the modes of some of the executions. In the Colosseum, unarmed Christians were set in the middle of the Colosseum and beasts that had been starved purposely for a week were, you know, and when I say beast, I'm not talking about an ostrich or any of that. I'm talking about leopards, tigers, bears, Lions were set upon the Christians. Obviously, pretty deadly. One of the modes of execution in the Colosseum was, was to tie Christians to wooden posts, cover them in tar, and then set them on fire. Obviously, this was done at night. Um... Part of the uh, executions in the Colosseum were was that they would send gladiators in and obviously the gladiators were armed but they just sent in the gladiators and said, you know, kill them. Now on a more individual level some of the modes of execution were there was known as a gridiron. I spoke of this in my original podcast. There were two iron grids, separate, that were heated red hot till they glowed. The victim was put in between the two red hot iron plates and the plate was closed upon the victim. Just as a quick autistic historical note, I believe it was St. Lawrence who died by the gridiron 
And when the gridiron was being closed on him, he told his executioners, turn me over, I'm not done yet. Um, there were a lot of people think that the, the invention of the rack was in the Middle Ages. It was not. It was actually a Roman invention. Basically what the rack is, is you tie, you, you have two pulleys and you tie one, you tie the hands on, on, on one of the bars at, at one end and the feet to the other bar on the other hand and then using a crank, you eventually tear apart the person that you're executing. It was that. Uh, Catholic martyrs were thrown into icy rivers. And if they tried to climb out of the icy river, they were pushed back in until they died of hypothermia. They were crucified if they were, non, if they were non-Roman citizens. And to the uh, theologically initiated, you, you already know what crucifixion entails. However... And this is stated in the New Testament. If you were a Roman citizen, you got to get beheaded. Which is an actual grace considering the majority of the modes of execution at that time were slow and painful. And they were meant to be slow and painful. Because they wanted to scare and cow the first Catholics into going along with their program, which was the, the modus operandi of the Roman government was um, after Nero had died, and once again, it depended on the emperor and it depended on the local ruler of wherever they were at, if they managed to round up Christians, they would give them two choices. Number one, do an offering to the emperor and we'll, we'll let you go. You're good. Or two, if you don't offer to the emperor, we are going to kill you. And by the way, the... Uh, the modes of execution I covered, very, very brief. Very, very brief. I mean, honestly speaking, the modes of execution are as varied as the modes of execution that the pagan Romans could come up with. But trust me, it was slow for the most part and very painful. And this is... This is where we're going to start getting into the meat of the matter as far as the first 300 years of the Catholic Church goes. Now, people are people. And um you know, Jesus uh I'm sorry. Yeah, Jesus said in one of his uh parables about the the net with with many fish. I believe it's in the gospel according to St. John that the fish are the net is is Catholicism the fish are humankind 
And the angels are the fishermen that take the bad ones out and toss them to, to be burned. And the good ones are kept. It is the same thing even in early Rome. Some people, you know, even when their families were, were being, you know, threatened, they said, yeah, go pound sand. I'm not doing it. You know, I've got a bigger reward waiting for me and my family does in heaven. You can't offer me anything that's comparable to what God is going to give me. And then others burn the incense. Now, you have to bear in mind that the persecutions of Christians didn't stop after Nero died. They didn't stop. They continued. Now, after he died, they were not systematic. They were not emperor-wide. But if you had an emperor in Rome at whatever time who had a particular axe to grind, and from my reading of history, it necessarily didn't even have to be political or religious for that matter. It could have been just a grudge. They... You know, they would revive the persecutions. Now, the one saving grace that God gave those early Catholics was, was just because the emperor in Rome decrees something because of the era they were living in does not necessarily mean that the governors in charge of the, the, local, the local areas had to, had to do it with the same severity as those Roman emperors. And but those but those persecutions lasted until Emperor Constantine won the battle at Malovian Bridge. I believe it's pronounced Malovia Bridge. Took over as the Roman Empire consolidated it under himself. Now, here's the key part. I mean, maybe it's not a key part. To me, it is. He legalized Christianity. Now, he wrote an edict legalizing Christianity. However, at that point, it did not make Christianity the state religion. It just meant that you could not be executed for being a Christian by the Roman governmental authorities. However... The same thing that it kept some Catholics safe before Constantine took over Rome also worked against the Catholics after he took over Rome. And I'm going to explain what I'm talking about. Just as in earlier times, the severity of the persecutions depended on the local governor, the recognition of Catholicism being recognized as a legal religion also depended on who the governor was. So even after he legalized Catholicism, you still had the persecutions. But at least this time, you know, the, the Catholics that were getting persecuted had legal redress to take it to the emperor. Now, 
Um, obviously, and you know, I, I can't give you an exact year or the date, but eventually Constantine made Catholicism the official state religion. And this is not a history lesson, so I don't want to get into the whole thing about the other pagan religions and blah, blah, blah. My point is, is to show the parallels between pagan Roman society and now. One of the, in addition, in addition to the persecutions and in addition to the persecutions, you also had heresies. And the heresies were operating as early as 40 AD to 60, I mean, between 40 and 50 AD. We, we, we're, we're talking, what, 17, 20 years after the, the ascension of Christ into heaven? And there were already heresies. Because if you read um, the epistle of St. Peter, the epistle of St. John, um, there, there may be one or two others. And I believe even St. Paul mentions this himself. There were heretical sects already sprouting up. So you had the heresies. Now, when St. Peter and St. Paul were martyred in Rome, because they were universally acknowledged by the other, the, the bishops in the other seas who may or may not have necessarily been apostles themselves, if they weren't actual apostles themselves, they were the successor to the apostles. Recognized, um, obviously it wasn't St. Paul who became a pope, it was St. Peter, but they recognized him as the head of the Catholic Church and his headquarters was in Rome. They recognized this. And the Christians had a community in Constantinople. And even when the Roman capital got moved to Constantinople, the Bishop of Constantinople was still subject to the Bishop of Rome, who by that time was known as Pope or Papa. Now, like I said, prior to St. Paul and St. Peter being martyred, the Christians, or I'm sorry, the Catholics could, they could worship, but they had to do it privately because even though it wasn't illegal for them to practice their Catholicism, they were viewed with suspicion and distrust by their friends, well, their neighbors. But when, when Nero declared open war on the Catholic Church, I'm sure some of you are familiar with the term the catacombs. The term underground comes from the word catacombs. The catacombs were 
a series of tunnels and rooms that were dug under the city of Rome itself. And they were so massive. I mean, they literally ran the... the, the and according to some of the information I've read, they even went to the outskirts of Rome. But there were rooms and tunnels and the Christians, or I'm sorry, the Catholics. Oh, by the way, I'm not using the term Christian because that term has been um, distorted. That term has been distorted to, you know, oh, you're a Christian if you say you are. No, you're not. Anyhow, the Catholics um, retreated into the catacombs and they held their church services in the, met, the various rooms that were inside of the catacombs. And because of the nature that the governmental authorities were trying to round them up and execute them, they obviously moved from place to place, room to room, within the catacombs. And just as a historical note, I'm sure you've all seen the pictures of the tombs within the catacombs where Christians who died or were martyred, what they would do is, if the person died of natural causes, they would wait for you know, the body to decompose, take the bones, clean them, and then put them inside of a niche and um, put whatever personal details about that person on the bones. And they did the same thing with the martyrs, if they could recover the bodies. And some of the bodies that they could recover, um, they later, you know, when, when, when Catholicism was made legal, they placed them in the altar place of their churches. Uh, I'm sorry, altar stone. Altar stone. Want to be correct about that. Altar stone. So, um, at least during, at least during the reign of Nero, and like I said, it depended on the Roman emperor, but for the first 300 years of the church's existence, Catholic church's existence, it was playing a cat and mouse game within the catacombs with the Ro Roman governmental authorities. And one of the saving graces that God gave those Catholics was that um, those, those catacombs were so vast that even if the Roman government could get a traitor or could pressure the one of the Catholics into you know, turning traitor, you know, they, they weren't guaranteed a success. They, that the, the meeting place might have been hidden. The Catholics that that particular person might have known had might have moved on. Now, and I realized it took me 40 minutes to get to this point and Apparently, this is going to slightly run over an hour. I apologize, but this is important. I consider all my, well, most of my uh, episodes to be important. What helped 
and I've stated this in one of my episodes on my original podcast, what helped convert the... Because like most things, the Catholic religion started at the top and worked... Well, in the case of Catholicism, it kind of was a mix of both. The first converts were influential and wealthy wives of senators or whatever and some of the converts were slaves they were literally slaves and one of the major accusations in the first 300 years against and ironically this this old canard has been launched in the past 50 years that christianity is a slave religion People who use that term don't realize that that term is literally 2,000 years old. That it was a slave's religion and was not fit for anything but a slave. But anyway, this is not about, not entirely about theology. So, but, um, When the martyrs, oh, I'm sorry. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for keeping me on point. What, what helped convert? Obviously, not all of Rome, or for that matter, the Roman Empire, converted to Catholicism. However, by, I want to say, the second or third century AD, the 100s and the 200s, um, it got to the what, what is known in modern terms is the point of no return. That Catholicism as a religion grew so large that even if the emperor at that time wanted to wipe out every Catholic within his own empire, he couldn't do it. There was too many Catholics. And part of this growth was two factors. One, the, the attitude of the, the, the martyrs that went to public martyrdom, their bravery, their piety, and their absolute fearlessness in the face of that. And in the second case, it was their actual, never mind, Never mind if they got martyred. If, let's just say they lived in a neighborhood where their neighbors knew that they were Catholic, but for whatever reason, they didn't have an axe to grind against their, their Catholic neighbors, their favorable impression, because these Catholics, and by the way, I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them, were so pious and devout in their example. They were literally the opposite of their pagan Roman society around them. And this impressed their neighbors, not, obviously not in all cases, but enough that their pagan neighbors were willing to give this religion a try because their neighbors had set such a good example. Now, should any set of accountants stumble upon this and have bothered to listen to my original podcast, 
Does this explain why I hammer upon the setting the example for our neighbors? And if you haven't listened to my original podcast, I urge you to do so. But you're, you know, you're an adult, you do what you want. So that is what helps spread Catholicism. And once again, we're talking 300 years. So in between sporadic persecutions, in between actual heretics trying to start their own religions, you know, calling themselves the Catholic Church when what they were teaching was not what the apostles had taught. And just another quick historical aside, there are in particular two... They're they're not church followers, but I'm sorry, church fathers. But it is often said, and I can't remember these two gentlemen's names. It it, it said that if they hadn't fallen into heresy, they would have been made church fathers. But they got so wrapped up in theology. And my understanding is, is that that. They were so wrapped up in, in the theology that they, they were speculating on stuff that they shouldn't have been speculating on. Now, it is a matter, I wish I could remember those guys' names, but I can't. But bear in mind, these guys were pious and devout Catholics until they, they, they dove too far into the realm of speculation and became out-and-out heretics. So, the reason I'm including this little thing in here is because, you know, I'll never get tired of telling Sedvacantis, just because you have the right faith does not necessarily mean you will stay in it. Having the right faith is a grace. It's a privilege. It's not a right. Despite what you might think. It's a a privilege and a grace. It could be withdrawn from you if you stray too far away or if you remove yourself from the grace. Now, part of... So that's, 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 that's the beginning of the early Roman church. I'm sorry, the early Catholic church. Now we go to today's society. Instead of emperor worship, although if this society lasts long enough, I suspect it will devolve into presidential worship. And if you see the way some people deify guys like Reagan, Kennedy, Clinton, and Obama... It's unofficial right now, but that's how emperor worship got started in Rome to begin with. It started unofficially, and people being people said, hey, you know, people are already worshiping us as emperors. We might just institutionalize the situation. We are basically living in a a pagan society. In America, you are allowed to practice whatever false and heretical faith that you wish to. You can even, um, I'm sure 
95% of the people when I raise this uh, example are have no idea what I'm talking about. But back in the 80s, the edgelord Xers of the 80s joined what was known as the Church of Bob. This is pre-internet. And the Church of Bob, I think the Bob was a uh, pseudonym for somebody else, but the Church of Bob, um, he, it had an image of a boomer father with a pipe in his mouth, grinning widely. And basically, the particular edgelord in question, um, now to his credit, I don't think that he actually got institutionalized, but to make a, whatever point he was making, he put out like newsletters and books and stuff about the Church of Bob. But like, like pagan Rome, we too have a large umbrella. But instead of the emperor being the top of the umbrella, we have our government and the constitution as the top of the umbrella. And like pagan Rome, we have our distractions. I made this, this point long before I got serious about my Catholicism that football was a modern day, American football I'm talking about, was a modern day um, imitation of the gladiator, gladiator fights. The reason I bring this point is there were some gladiators in, in pagan Rome that were so good at what they did that Roman soldiers used to hire them as trainers to train them into being better fighters on the battlefield. Now, obviously, there's no football players training. They may be training soldiers how to be better football players, but they're not training them how to fight. But... And pardon me if you're not interested in American football. This is going to bore you. It's brief. It'll be to the point. Anybody who's even watched, um, like within the past 30 or 40 years of American football, and I'm not going to get into the morality or any of that stupid crap, just for the simple... Uh, a less, a less, just on the athletic abilities alone, these guys are specimens of physical prowess. I have seen things be done on the, phys, on, on the football field on a Sunday afternoon that if you had told me that, that you had seen this same thing done, I wouldn't have believed you unless I saw it with my own two eyes. Anyway, I just had to throw that out there. But like pagan Rome, we have our distractions. And a lot of people like to pretend that um, abortion is a modern thing, that abortion somehow started in the 20th century. It didn't. Or late, uh, eight, like, uh, late 19th century. It didn't. Prior to Rome becoming an empire... 
when a woman had a baby that she felt that she either could not take care of or did not want, she would leave it on a particular um, section of a mountain or a volcano for the elements to kill or the wild beast to kill. And this was, known, this was known as exposing your babies or exposing the babies. And like pagan Rome, the Masonic Satanists who run our government, who designed our government, are going to brook no opposition. You can call this whatever you want to call it. The Great Reset, the Great Tribulation. I am firmly convinced when this, when this comes down that the first people, among the first people, I should say, among the first people that are going to be rounded up are the true Catholic slash set of contests. And the reason why I say this is the pagan Romans, for all their degeneracy, and believe me, I, I can't really get too deep in the weeds, pagan Roman society was every bit as degenerate as American society. The cross-dressing, the pretending to be female when you're male, and vice versa, that didn't start with the millennials. It didn't start with the Xers. It didn't even start with the boomers. This crap was going on in pagan Rome. And pagan Rome, I'm 90% certain, even had uh, uh, religious prostitutes. But pagan Rome... They didn't have to go after the other sects that were under their umbrella, their big tent, as it were, of, of um, emperor worship because the, 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 the sects that were underneath this umbrella were going to offer them no threat politically or if you want to use the term spiritually. They were on the same hymn book, more or less, with the pagan Roman government. However, said Vacantists, if they are devout and sincere, are very much going to be the antithesis of whatever's coming. I mean, they already are. But right now, our time has not come. And when our time does come, now, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not predicting fire and brimstone. I'm not predicting Armageddon. What I am saying, though, is eventually they're going to go after other people. And because said of a contism, and God has given us the grace to be relatively small and more or less unknown to the general population at large, when they eventually decide to go after Set of Contests, 
they're probably going to have a harder time of it than Nero did. But like the, the early Catholics, you have got to get you wean yourself off of the externals. This was the whole point of the topic of my podcast. For 300 years, the true Catholic Church survived despite not having some isolated areas might have had their own little church, but for the most part, they did not have major churches. They did not have regular priests. They could not get the sacramentals regularly. What kept them going was their faith, their piety, and their devotion. And you're going to have to learn to develop those Virtues in heroic degree. Because if what's coming down the pike actually happens, because barbarity is Satan's tool in trade. So the barbarity, the, the intensity of barbarity never ceases. But as technology grows, the what's the word I'm looking for? The um, imagination, uh, the imagination, uh, sorry, the inventiveness of the barbarity gets more refined. But this is, you know, I'm, I'm firmly convinced that. Um, you know, God allowed the external Catholic Church to be corrupted for a reason. And I also believe that He did this for a reason. And that reason was, was He, that the other prior uh, Catholics, true Catholics, had become lax, um, they'd become presumptuous, and they become slothful. And he wanted, and he talks about this in the New Testament, if you have uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, about winning the chaff. But I'm, I'm urging, if you're set of a contest, or for that matter, really, uh, Vatican II sect or Neotrads, um, Hone your virtues. Hone your virtues of of um uh, fortitude, zealousness, faith, confidence, hope, and especially charity. So this ran a lot longer than I had anticipated. There's lots more I could have said. Lord willing, if he puts it in my heart, I will cover whatever it is I missed covering in this particular episode. Once again, 
if you gave me a little over an hour of your time, even if you disagree with me, I thank you for listening. I mean that sincerely, but you take that for what it's worth. I do care about you guys as far as a flawed, failed person like myself with his sins and all that comes with being a human being. Um, I do care about you guys. I, um, I pray for everyone and I'd like to see as many people get to heaven as possible. Thank you for listening and especially thank you for your time. God bless you. Have a good day. Bye-bye.